0: A couple of years ago, Susan and I were celebrating our 20th anniversary. We had the opportunity, that was a lifelong dream of ours, to when we first got married, to go to Greece. And so we were uh, on this, uh, the island of Santorini, which is absolutely gorgeous. And they have this, well, they call it a caldera. Caldera means cauldron. And it's shaped like this huge cauldron, this, this expanse of cliffs that is the result of a massive volcano. And uh, you can climb up this one section of it, a huge section. So Susan and I decided to do that. We're climbing it, and we're steering out into the Aegean Sea, and we're looking at these small islands, and we're just absolutely mesmerized. We are mesmerized by the beauty. And uh, we get up to the top and, and, uh, of this, this one cliff, and uh, I later found out the cliffs are 990 feet. So it took us a couple hours to get, to get up this thing. And, and it, was, it, was, uh, it was incredible. And it was, a, it was a ton of work. And when we got there, we realized we had to get back. <laughs> and so Susan decided that with, with each step, uh, because the steps aren't even, which of course makes it a little more exhausting, and it was very hot, Susan decided that with each step, we would, we would say, Greek coffee, ferro cappuccino. With, with each syllable, with each step. So each step all the way back was Fredo, Cappuccino, Fredo, Cappuccino to get us back. And it worked, you know, good mojo. And it took us a while. And we were, but we were blown away by the beauty of this place. Nature has a way of doing that. If you sit in your backyard this afternoon and stare into the sky and stare at the clouds long enough, if you pause long enough, the sky will draw you in. The clouds will draw you in. If you lay out at night and stare into the expanse of the stars, it's the same. If you go to, for a walk and you take enough time to stop and stare at the trees, the nature has a way of mesmerizing rising you and calling you in. Our text this morning is Psalm 19, which is precisely how the psalm starts. It starts out, in fact, by saying something even more boldly than I've said it, which is that nature itself has a voice because of the God of creation who put nature in its place. Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Now this psalm declares that God reveals himself to us in two ways. For the kids who are in here, reveals the word revelation. It means to uncover. It means to make clear something that was covered. And God does this in two ways. By general revelation, which is nature. And that's how the psalm starts out. The first five verses are speaking about how God reveals himself in nature. General revelation. But then the rest of the psalm goes on and it speaks about special revelation, which is the divine revealing of himself through his word. And so as we look at the first five verses... They point to how God is the God of creation. It's it's like this nonverbal communication. Did you notice as I was reading the text how it kept saying that their words are going out? Nature's words are going out. What an interesting uh, word picture that that gives us. Nonverbal communication, as you know, sends a message loud and clear. We have encounters of nonverbal communication all the time where somebody doesn't need to say something, but you're like, I got the message, right? It happens every day. And creation itself is a cosmic level of non-communication that God has with with us. Where he sends out an an absolute, uh, undeniable message of his existence to all of us. Think of this, um, think about art and beauty, which is how this text begins to speak to us and, and invites us to think about God, about beauty. When you think about beauty, when you think about art... If you look at visual art, it's not speaking to you, but everybody who appreciates art and curates art will talk about how it speaks to them. All of us look at things, if, you are, if you're going to design your home or you're going to do something that is aesthetic, when you go to buy some new clothing, there is certain styles that speak to you. Art speaks to you. Fashion speaks to you. This is the way we think about Beauty. Some of you look at it and say, you know, well, I prefer this over that. Why? Because this didn't resonate with you and that did. This, it's all nonverbal communication. The text starts out by saying that nature itself, world and the cosmos, is God's monstrous non-communication to the world in a, in, in a sense that it is speaking about his beauty and his greatness. The mountains, the oceans, the stars in the sky, they are works of art. They are works of the art of the hands of God and they speak to the soul of humanity the beauty speaks to us think about when you go to a movie and how words are not being said on the screen but you're watching these images moving and it's a montage to a score that musician that carefully crafted that instrumental score it's moving you i mean if you shut the sound off it's a completely different experience right Sometimes when kids are little and the movie starts to get a little scary, you turn the sound down because when they can't hear the music, it's not as scary anymore. Because mu- mu- music and art has that ability, that power to move your soul. The mountains, the stars, the sky, the, the, the sun. is is God's monstrous communication to the soul of man, captivating us by beauty to say, I'm here. Look to me. The work of the artisan's hands. When you think about the world from, a, from, a, from an academic or a scientific point of view, in order for organic life to exist here, we have all of these fundamental regularities that have to exist. The constants in science, the, the positive and uh, the strong and weak nuclear forces. There's 15 constants that have to be in perfect harmony uh, with mind-boggling precision for life to exist here. Francis Collins was a mathematician and he was a, a, a geneticist who... Um, ran the genome project in America until he resigned recently. A genius, he discovered genes that led to various deficiencies and diseases. He's a genius. And Francis Collins speaks of the universe this way: he says the universe operates as if it knew we were coming. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga was the professor of analytical philosophy at Notre Dame, and he said this: if you he described the universe, the cosmos, kind of speaking to the existence of God in this way talked about it like a poker game. He said, imagine you're playing poker with your friends, and one of them puts down a royal flush. Everybody's going to push back at the table, if you know anything about poker, the odds of that. And they're going to go, wow! But if the next hand, your sane friend, puts down a royal flush, you're probably going to raise your eyebrow. And if late into the night, he's won everybody's money, Because hand after hand after hand after hand after hand he's put down a royal flush. It is not reasonable to conclude that this is chance at work. You're going to take him outside the garage and have a conversation about all these royal flushes that he's dealing. This is the God of the cosmos, the expanse of the universe and all of its beauty. Speaking and resonating with the human soul. And the Apostle Paul looked back on this psalm and looked back on this in Romans 1 and 2 and he said... All of creation is declaring the goodness of God in such a way that all of humanity has a knowledge of his existence and is without excuse. We are without excuse to turn to the creator and seek for his salvation. We're without excuse. We can suppress that knowledge, and many of us do suppress that knowledge. But it is not because God has not gone to cosmic lengths, even throughout nonverbal communication, to say, I'm here. And so analyzing our world and the cosmos is magnificent, not just because the laws of physics are, are purposeful and they, they're, and they don't operate in a, lawless lay, in a lawless way and they stimulate our minds, but because the breathtaking beauty of the world kindles the fire we have, our desire for beauty in our souls. And this is why when we look out at nature, just like the psalmist, you look out at nature and you feel the beauty sucking you in. It's precisely because of this. It's nature itself is singing the praises of God, and it's calling our soils to our souls to join in the song. Plato and Aristotle and Einstein and scores of other academics, they looked out at the natural world, and they reasonably concluded that there was the existence of a divine, a prime mover, something behind the equations, something causing everything to exist. And they looked back and they saw these things. But you know what? Reason alone... It can show us that there is a God, but reason alone can't show us our need for the saving grace of God. We can look out at the cosmos and go, no, there's something behind this. But as you know, nonverbal communication can be misunderstood. You've looked at your spouse or a friend or somebody and sent a signal that you thought was you were sending one signal, and they responded thinking that you sent a very different signal. So you see, God doesn't just stop with the nonverbal communication of the cosmos and says, through your intellect and reason alone, find me. Well, through our intellect and reason alone, we can see plainly that there is a God, but through reason and intellect alone, we can't know that we have need of a saving grace. So God, in his great love, doesn't stop at the cosmos, the nonverbal communication, but he moves with a very special revelation past the world to his word. His written word. But also then he incarnated himself, which is why Jesus Christ is called the word. That God came and said, I will perfectly interpret myself for you and I will come. And I will reveal my great love and my great grace to you. And so uh, as the first five verses teach us that we can gain this knowledge the text moves on to say, to, to, to reveal to us that he is not just the creator God of the world, but the redeeming God, the loving God. He reveals himself through the second part of this text, verses 7 through 14, as the redeeming God of perfection. It says in verses 7 and 8 that the law of the Lord is perfect, it revives the soul, his testimony is true, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. It rejoices, causes our heart to rejoice and enlightens our eyes. And when this passage tells us that the law of God is perfect, it teaches us two things. If God is perfect and his law is perfect and there's a perfection, that immediately announces our need for God's grace because nobody looks in, in the mirror and says, oh, look at this perfect person looking straight back at me. The perfection of the law of God immediately introduces our need for his grace. But secondly, his perfection announces That his word, his law, will not fail in guiding you into wisdom for soul-level flourishing. You know, when we get the first few verses of the Bible, it reveals you've got this God who created everything so that we would enjoy everything. And God is not a cosmic killjoy. His law is not there to crush you. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, his law is there to faithfully guide you. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, then the law does crush you because it's perfect. Jesus summarized the law like this. Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said, you can take the whole Bible and hang it on this. All the law, all the prophets, hang it on this. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of God. Love God perfectly, love other people perfectly, and you're keeping the law of God. That's how Jesus summarized it. Nobody's doing that. None of us can do it. We love God, but then we don't. We trust him, then we don't. We love our neighbor, then we don't. We love our spouse, then we don't. We love our kids, then we don't. We're selfless, then we're not. We're weaving in and out of the new nature we have in Christ and the old nature of our sinful humanity. Nobody can keep the perfect law of God. So if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, this law does crush you because it demands perfection. But if you are in Christ, and I'm speaking to those of us here this morning who are in Christ, it doesn't crush us. It guides us. God is in the cosmic killjoy. And so this law that God gave at the beginning of creation was not because he was this, this, this insecure deity that needed worship. It was because the way to in, truly enjoy everything is to, not, it, it is to worship the creator and not be bound to the identity crisis that comes with worshiping the creation, needing somebody or something to, to make you feel fulfilled, to find that fulfillment ultimately in God. And that's why God gave his law, to faithfully guide the way to enjoy everything is to worship God. That's what we were created for. Our worship doesn't make him any more God, but it makes us more human. Because it truly liberates us and frees us in the worship of God through Christ. In 1994, I just graduated from high school. I'm going to give you a picture of this fulfillment being found in God as opposed to other things. I mean, there's millions of examples, but this one always comes to me. Ninety- 1994, I just graduated from high school. I was a big football fan. The San Francisco 49ers had just won the Super Bowl with a guy named Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders is in the NFL Hall of Fame. He's the top 10 college players of all time, the top 100 NFL players of all time, one of the greatest safeties in the history of NFL football. After they win the Super Bowl, he buys a Lamborghini and he wraps it around a tree because he's so depressed he thinks about killing himself. And me, as a little 19-year-old in 1994, is thinking, why would anybody ever do that when you seem to have everything? You know? And whenever there are celebrity suicides, the media responds in this way, oh, it's tragic and crazy, and, you know, and often people are like, why? Why would they do it? Because there's nothing more terrifying than going after the thing that you think will fulfill you, and then getting that thing, and then not being fulfilled. And when Deion Sanders was giving his testimony of this, he was like, I was terrified the morning after. I laid in bed and and looked at the Super Bowl ring and everything and realized, oh my goodness, I feel exactly the same. The emptiness has not left me. You see, the law of God in the garden was not because God's a cosmic killjoy. He's like, here's how you truly enjoy everything. You find your worship and your fulfillment and your sense of identity in me, and now you're free to actually enjoy good things you know, to borrow from Augustine, without loving good things in the wrong way, and making the good things the ultimate things. So this text shows us how the law of God is perfect, and it, go, it talks about it opening our eyes and enlightening us and liberating our souls, so that we're not like thirsty people drinking sand in the desert, Frees us from our identity crisis. If, we're, if you're a young person, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a student or you're an adult with a career, but I'll just speak to the students. As you're looking to the future and the uncertainty that is there, as you're working through your, your degrees or through high school or what you're going to do to graduate, if you are looking for the city to name you, if you're looking for the degree to give you a name, the city to give you a name, the successful, successful career to give you a name, right, or a relationship to give you a name, That's going to be a chronic chase on a treadmill of unfulfillment that never ends. But if you're already named, if your identity is resting in the one who has named you. Living through the wise guidance of the law of God. Now you're free to actually enjoy all those things. And in fact, your identity is intact despite the uncertainty of the shifting landscape of economy, politics, and sociology that's around you. Because the law of God is perfect reviving your soul reviving your heart and so God's in his great love he shows us our need for this our need for the presence in his eyes by reorienting our worship which is actually a saving grace right this is what he does it says that the word of God it it enlightens and opens the eyes verses seven and eight it says that, that that it enlightens the the, the the eyes and it ministers to the soul. The word soul in the Hebrew, the word soul is lab, which actually means psyche. So it means the innermost self, sense and knowledge of who you are. Psyche in- incorporates your intellectual commitments and convictions, but also the appetitive desires of uh, your attractions. The psyche. The text says that he's able to liberate and open and bring a refreshment to your innermost self. And so there is a way for us to live and enjoy the security of who we are, and this is through the faithful guidance of the goodness of his law, by bending our knee to his word, trusting it for what it is. This, this, This passage says that it's perfect, which means do we, you know, it's inviting us to trust, do we trust that it it's revealing the nature of God perfectly, and it will guide us as children of God perfectly. That's hard to swallow when you read that and say, the law of God is perfect. We don't even like that language. It's 2018, and I'm up here telling you this law of God is perfect. But the cultural conversation was, well, hold on a minute, and wait a second. Isn't this an ancient text, you know, this collocation of stories that's all been together? And wait, hold on now. We're intellectual moderns. So let's think about this reasonably. What do you mean It's perfect. This is hard for us to swallow because we live in a, a, a we well we live in a backdrop against a backdrop of of, of post truth. So it's difficult to say now. Do I trust that the word of God is going to perfectly, lovingly, wisely guide me into flourishing? What if I am in reading God's word and it conflicts with my ideology? Now what do I do? This text says we can with great confidence bend our knee and say, "Oh God." This is now convicting me. I'm now reading something that is contradictory to my ideology, contradictory to my ethics, contradictory to how I see the world and how I should think about the poor or the downtrodden or those who don't agree with my sexual ethics. I mean, now I'm looking at this. How do I relate? This This text is telling me to love my enemies and love those who persecute me, persecute me and hate me. This text is telling me to, to, to give my life to this conviction. Can I trust it? And it's saying, yes, you can. You're very small and God is very great. That's why the text started with the cosmos. It started huge. So that by the time we get to the part to say, this law will guide you perfectly, we've already established that we're specks in the universe. You're a speck in the universe physically. You're not a speck in the universe relationally. You consume the mind of God. He loves you. He cares for you. He's gone to cosmic lengths to reveal himself to you. But before the text gets to the point where it says, now this law will faithfully guide you, it close our minds into the beauty of nature so that we would wonder at the great, incredible, endlessness of God so that we're able to humble our knee and say, you know what, I'm made of dirt. I'm good to be guided. I'm good to have the God of the cosmos guide me. This is the flow of the wonder of this this text here. It's faithful to guide us. Sometimes we think, you know, I'm not sure that it will. Last year, last summer, we were, um, I'll give you a picture here of, of somebody being led astray, okay? Last summer, we have a Redeemer Kids Day. All the kids from the church here are hanging out at, at uh, Jasper and Christine's house. And we've got games planned and all these different things we're doing for the kids. Um, Susan and I and some of the others are doing all this stuff. And they have a pool. So the kids jump in the pool at the end. of. We're like, okay, for the last you know two hours jump in the pool. And then we all get to sit around and have coffee. Such a great strategy. While the kids are just swimming and we're just watching them in the pool. And so they all get out of the pool. And Nigel says, uh, I can't find my towel, and, oh, I must have forgotten the car. So I go up, and it's not there. So I come down, and I say, the towel's not in the car. I guess I'll have to borrow somebody else's towel. And so Susan laughs and says, no, it's probably there. You probably just didn't see it, because I have a, a, of this long list of deficiencies that she has discovered I have in our marriage, one of them is I, I can't see things, apparently. I look through things, I look right at them, but I don't see them. I don't know why that is. I'm sure I'm the only one in this room suffering from that. And all of the rest of you who are laughing and and nudging the people next to you are doing that for no reason whatsoever. But anyways, I I come back, I say it's not there. So Lucas, a lot of you guys know Lucas, the little guy, uh, Jasper's and Christine's little guy. Lucas goes up, he says, I'll find it. I said, you're not going to find it. He says, oh yes, I will. He goes up with Nigel and the others. and They say, I will find it. And they say, uh, I said, listen, you're not going to find it. If you find it, I'll jump in the pool with my clothes on because it's not there. And about five minutes later, Lucas is coming down the hill with a towel around his neck. And I'm like, no way. And Susan's like, of course. Of course they found it. Of course you didn't see it. So I go, oh my goodness. I jump in the pool with my clothes on. All the kids are laughing. I get out. And then Lucas pulls the towel up from around his and, and holds it down like a flag. And it's not Nigel's towel. I mean, it looked like his towel when it was wrapped up, but it wasn't. See, that's called fallible guidance. <laughs> oh, this seems really right. Oh, no, it's not right. And you know, as moderns who want to commit eisegesis, literary eisegesis on the Word of God, eisegesis means you put your interpretation into the text, exegesis is you study it and to, to extract the meaning from the text. My job is to come up here and give and exegete God's Word for you go through history and language and all of these things at my disposal to faithfully, as faithfully as I can, exegete the text. It's not my job to get up here and put my ideas into it and eisegete the text. Because we live in a modern world where literary eisegesis is, and always has been, a prevalent and popular way of wanting to interpret the Bible, so this text says it is, it is not going to lead you astray. It is not, you're not going to find a law of God that looks good, but in the end is hurtful to you, damaging to you, damaging to society, unloving towards others. It faithfully guides our souls into liberation, including the portions of the text that contradict our ideology, including the portions of the text that are the opposite of how we think and feel and the things that we're attracted to. Why? Because this is a dusty book? No, because of verse 1 the one who spun the universe into motion, who through his nonverbal communication has communicated his great love and grace to us, came and incarnated himself in Jesus Christ to show us his great love and desire to liberate our souls and our hearts, and therefore his word is faithful to guide, faithful to um, liberate us. This is the truth of the goodness of, of our God. He's faithful to reform us and fulfill us, And oftentimes that means rescuing us, rescuing us from our own wayward ideas and rescuing us from our own wayward desires. Verse 11 says, in keeping God's law, there's great reward. Well, that sounds great, but who keeps it? I mean, we've already established if it's perfect, then none of us can be keeping it, because who's going to stand in a line labeled perfect? But it says there's great reward for those who keep it. Verse 6 says that the law of God is like the scorching sun. Nobody, nobody escapes its heat. So if the law of God is perfect and it's like the scorching sun and nobody escapes its heat and the law of God exposes the meditations of the heart, but there's a reward if we keep it, what are we going to do? What do we do with this? The whole psalm ends in verse 13 and 14 by saying, Then I shall be blameless. How? Then I shall be innocent of great transgression. How? How? Good news, church. God doesn't make you guess who He is. He's gone to cosmic lengths to reveal Himself to you, to show you exactly who He is. God doesn't hang you out to dry in your inability to keep this perfect law. He came in Jesus Christ. He kept the perfect law for you. You are here on Sunday morning in and out to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ that He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He has qualified you for the reward of Psalm 19. Jesus Christ is the word of God incarnate. And so if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know how God feels about you, you look at the cross. And so Christ the Redeemer has met the impossibly high, loving, and just requirements of God's law. So that in believing in Him, He gives us His perfect record of righteousness. Verse 13 and 14 say, The person who gets the reward is blameless and innocent. Jesus was blameless and innocent by nature and you are declared blameless and innocent by grace. This law, this perfect law, is no longer a prerequisite of salvation for you. It will faithfully guide you in the new nature that united to Christ is in you. Perfect word that revives and refreshes your soul. The wise precepts that will make your heart rejoice because they're clean, enduring, true, it says, more desirable than gold and more desirable than honey. Like when you eat a great dessert and it's so good, you salute, you salute your food with a fork, you're like, yes, this is the stuff right here. That's, how the, that's what the text is saying. That's the goodness of God towards you. So the way we understand this psalm, and every psalm, is through a cross-shaped lens God's law is no longer like the heat or the scorching sun that's accusing you because in Jesus Christ, God's grace has exonerated you. And so now, nothing uh, is hidden from God's law. It says that it's like the scorching sun and the good news is that Jesus took our heat. And so therefore, God's law now illuminates the sinful things in us to reform us. The meditation of our mind and reorient the desires of our heart guide the appetites and the choices made by our will, giving us peace and hope and strength and wisdom. And as you read God's word, God's word is reading you. The Spirit is working in you. Let the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouths be acceptable in God's sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen.